Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. Lord, that, uh, that with so many different voices in our world today, Lord, uh, so many different uh, takes on what is real and what is false and what is true. Lord, that when we come to your word, we know that it is always true. Lord, that you do not lie, that you always speak the truth. So, Lord, we come to your word today eager to, to know you more, eager to, to have our relationship and our walk with you deepened, eager to, to learn of your ways and, and how we can live as your people, Lord, as you've called us to live in this place and in this time. We thank you for speaking to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Have any of you ever forgotten something very important? Have you ever forgotten something like your wife's birthday or your husband's birthday? None of the wives have. There were several of the men who groaned when I asked if you had forgotten your wife's birthday. What about an anniversary? Have you ever made an appointment with someone where you, you were, you were going to be there and you just totally forgot to punch it into your calendar and you just, you just, it, it just sli- slipped your mind? You, you just totally forgot until they called you on the phone and you remembered, oh my goodness, I'm supposed to be there meeting with this person. You know, I think that, that really we are forgetful people. Uh, we forget things. I thank God that I've never forgotten my wife's birthday or I've never forgotten an anniversary. At least I don't remember forgetting them. Um, <laughs> at least not that I remember. Um, but how did that go for you when you forgot that really important thing? It didn't go well, did it? Things don't go well when we forget things that we should remember. It is human nature to forget. I remember um, uh, several years ago, after I first became the pastor, uh, there was a couple that I, I sort of knew and didn't really know them that well, and um, they weren't members of the church or anything like that, but they were related to some people in the church. And Anyway, I bumped into the husband, and I remembered that they were expecting a baby. And so I couldn't remember this person's name because I, I, I don't know if there's some sort of ism where you can't remember people's names. I have the hardest time remembering people's names. Just ask my wife, Frances. I just have the <laughs> hardest time. Uh, that's not really her name. Her name is Heather. That's a joke there. Anyway, I, I couldn't remember his name because I have a hard time remembering names, but I remembered his face. I remembered that they were expecting, and as I was trying to, you know, just stir up some conversation, I asked him how the pregnancy was going. And he said, well, you know, she had the baby already, as, as you remember. Oh, no, I don't remember what. He says, as you remember that you dedicated the baby just... <laughs> A couple of weeks ago. Of course I remember that. How could I possibly forget that? As soon as you said that, I remember it vividly in living color. But we forget things from time to time, important things that we should even remember. Sometimes I feel like my mental hard drive is just totally full. 
and that I can't remember any new things unless I get rid of some old things. Nevertheless, no matter how important some things are, we still can forget. Remember, do you ever remember your mom telling you to tie a string around your finger? Any, any of you ever do that? Did it help? No, it didn't. I, I once, yeah, anyway, like we could forget things so easily. And so I, I want you to know that God knows that we are a forgetful people. He created us. He made us. He knows that we forget things from time to time. And so he gave us, his church, a very special gift to help us remember the most important thing in our lives. The most important thing in our lives as Christians is Jesus, is the gospel, is the cross. And so God has given to us his church communion to help us to regularly remember the work of Christ on our behalf. And so this morning, I wanted to spend some time, before we take of communion together, I wanted to spend some time teaching on communion and why we take it and, and what it signifies and what it represents. You know, it's important for us to have, a, as best as we can, to have a, 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 an accurate, a, a biblical understanding of what it is that we are doing when we partake of the bread and we partake of the juice and why we take these things together. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm going to read from this passage. And it is a, a longer passage this morning, um, but it, it really sets the stage for uh, what it is that we do when we come together and take of the Lord's Supper together. Now, the Corinthian church that Paul writes to, this was a church that had a lot of problems, a lot of problems. And I wish I had time to go into all of the problems that they had, um, but I don't have time this morning. But one of the problems was they were not taking the Lord's Supper in the right way. They were abusing this, this time of communion. They weren't observing it uh, in a proper manner. And so Paul writes to bring correction to them on a whole host of issues, including this issue of communion. And so let's jump in, and we'll start in verse 17. Verse 17. Paul writes concerning the Lord's Supper. He says, In the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Paul says, you're doing things so wrong that it would be actually better if you didn't even get together. That when you come together, the, the, the result is not a positive, it's actually a negative. It is for the worse. He says, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And we know from reading Corinthians that there were some people who wanted to follow Paul's teaching and some people that wanted to follow Peter's teaching and some people that wanted to follow this guy named Apollos' teaching. And then there was the really spiritual people who would say, well, I just follow Jesus. 
I just follow Jesus. And, and Paul writes and he says, look, is, is the body of Christ divided? Are, are we not all teaching the same message? Are we not all teaching the same gospel? And so here he writes to correct them on these divisions. He says in verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. We know that in the early church, when they would come together before they took of communion, that they would have a, a, a celebratory meal, that they would come together and have a, a fellowship meal together. And he says that, that there's some who are, are eating the food that they bring while others are going hungry, that the needy are going hungry. How many of you have ever been to a church potluck? Okay. Or at some point in the 90s, people started calling them pot blesses because we don't believe in luck. Anyway, it's where you all just bring food and you just eat together in each other's presence and just fellowship with one another. Now, what was happening here is at this church fellowship meal before they took communion, that everyone just brought their own food. And so those who were well off, those who were wealthy, those who had means, they showed up with a huge like Thanksgiving turkey dinner and gorged themselves on it. While those who were of very meager means, who couldn't even afford possibly their next meal, they sat there and watched. And they were using this idea of a fellowship meal and the Lord's Supper together to, to highlight the economic and social divisions within the church. That's ungodly. Amen. And so he says, what are you doing? He says, this is not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, not sharing. You know, every potluck I've ever been to, everyone just throws all the food on the same table. And even those who, who didn't have means to come and bring food, that they still are blessed together in eating of the KFC or the Taco Bell or whatever you got from H-E-B. Because, anyway. It wasn't like, okay, I've got my little section of my little food and nobody better touch my enchiladas. You know, that's... It's not what the body of Christ is about. And think about if it's happening on that, that insignificant of a level, right? That, that's menial. That they're, they're, they're making such a big deal about such a small thing. Think about how they treat each other in the big things. Think about that. How that plays out in the life of the church community. He says, one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? He says, exclamation point, what? You know, drinking so much of the communion wine that you get drunk. That's a lot. Amen? Like, that's, that's crazy. That's a circus that's happening when this church comes together. He says, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? 
What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And then here he brings a, a, a teaching about the Lord's Supper. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. He said, I taught you guys how to do this. I received this from the Lord. We received this from the Lord. He instituted this supper, and I have given it to you, and I'm going to remind you of it. I received from the Lord. I gave to you what I received from the Lord, that on the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance, everybody say remembrance, remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this is the cup in the new covenant. Everybody say new covenant, new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, like he just described, in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So this is his instructions to the Corinthians on the Lord's Supper. It is a time of remembrance. They were not using this time to remember the work of Christ. They were using communion to create division within the body and to glorify themselves. And so I want to share with you this morning uh, just a few points on what we should be remembering as we participate in communion. At Destiny, we take communion once a month. We take it on the first Sunday of the month. The Bible does not say how often that we should be doing it, but that we should be doing it on a regular basis. And so uh, we take of it once a month together on the first Sunday of the month. But when we get together, when we take it as a church, what should we be remembering? What should we be reflecting on? The first thing is simply Christ's death. Christ's death, Christ and his sacrifice for us, his willing sacrifice. And we should remember and reflect on, as Jesus said, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood that is shed for you. We should remember that Christ went to the cross willingly, that his life was not taken from him, but that his life was laid down by himself. He could have called down a legion of angels to rescue him from the cross. He could have spoken one word, 
and saved himself from the cross, yet he went to the cross willingly because of his great love for you and for me. It should remind us of his death. It should remind us of his love. It should remind us of him laying down his life to ransom mine. Because I was in sin, because I had sinned against God and made myself an enemy of God, yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says that Christ did not die for the godly, but the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's, it's not that we come to Christ and, and then we repent and, and then we clean ourselves up and, and then the effects of his death are for us. No, he died for us while we were yet sinners. Ephesians 2.13 says, In Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. As we reflect on his death We reflect on his sacrifice that is all sufficient. Amen. His sacrifice is perfect. It is complete. There's nothing that needs to be added to it. There's not a work that I have to do to add to my salvation, to add to my forgiveness, to add to me being saved and being made right with God. It is completely accomplished through the work of Christ. All sufficient. This is glorious good news. Because if it was on you in any way, you would mess it up. Trust me. I'm telling you the truth. If it was on us, if there was any point that we had to do to receive the grace of God, to receive the sacrifice of Christ, to receive forgiveness of sins, we would mess it up. It is perfect. It is complete. It is all sufficient. It is finished, as Jesus said on the cross. Amen. And it is sufficient for every sin for every sin you've ever committed past present and future the work of christ on the cross is all sufficient amen so as a child of god having put my faith in jesus christ having had my sins forgiven i stand with confidence knowing that i am right with god Not because of a work of my flesh, not because I'm such a good person, not because I follow the teachings of the Bible so clearly, simply because of the work of Christ on the cross as he died and shed his blood, paying the price for my sin. Amen. You know, when you witness to people, a lot of times they say, I'm too bad, I'm too sinful. The things that I've done, you don't understand. And I don't. I don't understand the things that you've done. However, no sin is so great that it is greater than the blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Amen. All sufficient. And this is a once for all sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice that continues 
Jesus did it one time. I want to read to you some passages from Hebrews chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 7, 9, and 10 that speak of this once and for all sacrifice. And later I'm going to tie this together on why this is important when we come to communion. Hebrews chapter 7, 27. Jesus has no need like those high priests. He's talking about the old covenant now. The old high priest who had to offer sacrifices for sin. He says those, he has no need to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews chapter 9, 11 and 12 say, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, this new covenant that we're a part of, then through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not the one made with hands, that is not of this creation, he's talking about the tabernacle of his body that he offered up, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. If you are in Christ today, your redemption is secure. You can have assurance of salvation, assurance of faith, assurance that when your time comes to meet the Lord, that you will be welcomed into heaven having your sins forgiven. Amen. I don't have to walk and wander through life. Am I forgiven? Am I a child of God? Am I not? If I have put my faith in Christ and truly believed upon Him and His sacrifice as the Son of God in my place, I can know, you can know that your sins are forgiven. Amen. I don't have to wake up every day. Am I, am I a Christian today or am I not? Now I can be a good Christian or a bad Christian. Just like I could be a good husband or a bad husband, but I'm still a husband. We live out our salvation. We work from the place of being saved. We live our Christian life in response to what God has done for us, not to earn it. We could never earn it on our own. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 10 through 14, the final passage in Hebrews. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And then he talks about the old way with the old priesthood and the old temple. He says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had entered, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Amen. Amen. 
Hebrews talks about this once and for all sacrifice. It also talks about how Jesus is the priest who offers the sacrifice, and he is also the sacrifice itself. He offers up himself. That the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, was a foreshadowing of the true work of God that would be accomplished through Jesus Christ. And what we remember in taking communion is we remember Jesus. That's why he says, do this in remembrance of me. We remember Jesus. We remember his willingness to go to the cross. We remember his love that purchased for us redemption. Now in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3, it says that the old sacrifices that the priests would make in the temple, that they brought a remembrance of sin. But Jesus says when we take of communion, it's not to stir up in us a remembrance of our sin. That's the old covenant. Instead, when we take of communion, it stirs up in us a remembrance of Jesus. And so a lot of times people, they don't want to take of communion because they feel unworthy because of their sin. But truly, if we have had our sin paid for, we reflect on Jesus, not our past. We reflect on who we are now in Christ. The Bible says a new creation, and we reflect on the future that we have with him forever. The second thing that we remember is we remember Christ risen from the dead. Amen. That Jesus is no longer dead, and so I am no longer dead in my sins and trespasses. That I have new life. That I am a partaker in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That I am a new creation. My old life has passed away. The life I now live is through Christ and his power in me. Amen. I remember that I have received this gift of salvation only through the grace of God. It's not something that I earn. It's only a gift. I also remember that as a part of Jesus' church, I have a part to play in sharing my faith and in, in proclaiming the gospel. And Paul even wrote in this passage that we read that part of, uh, of taking of communion is that we proclaim the gospel through that. It's part of the way that we witness to the world that we partake of communion together. We remember that Jesus is returning for his church, his bride, of which I am a part of, and that we will be together for all eternity. We also remember that we are participants in the benefits of Christ's death for us. Amen. Jesus commanded his disciples, take and eat. And so we individually, we come, we, we walk to the front, and we come and we reach out our hand in, in obedience to the Lord who said, take and eat and take and drink. We do the same. And as we do that, we are proclaiming through that action I am taking the benefits of Christ's death to myself. It's part of our witness. And it's not, as Paul talked about, it's not something that we do lightly. He said that those who, who, judge the, the, who, who, who do not judge the body of Christ in a, in a worthy manner, that, or, or those who take unworthily, keep judgment upon themselves. 
And so there's this question of, should I take communion? I've been asked this many times, should I take communion? And the question is, are, are your sins forgiven? Have you repented of your sin? Have you trusted in Christ? Communion is only for believers. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, absolutely not. You should not take of communion. Absolutely not. But if you are a born-again Christian who's put your faith in Jesus, who's trusting in the all-sufficient work of the cross and nothing else to save you, you've repented of your sin, you're, you're endeavoring to live for Him, and you love Him with all your heart, absolutely you should take of communion. Absolutely. Paul writes, he says, examine yourself and then take. And so communion is a time of examination, self-examination. Have I, how am I living for the Lord? How is my walk with the Lord going? Am I living in unrepentant sin? If I am, I should repent of that sin and come and take communion. Amen. I, I, would, I, would, be, I would caution you, though, if you are living in willful, unrepentant sin that you don't come and partake of, of the Lord's Supper, that you really should examine yourself, examine your heart. And if you are living in sin, repent and come and partake together. Don't, don't let another week go by or another month go by. Deal with it. Bring the sin to the foot of the cross and then partake of, of, of the, the memorial and the remembrance and the symbol of your forgiveness. But we should examine our hearts. We should be repenting of our sin. Communion is a time for all of us to be convicted by the Holy Spirit, where the Lord will remind us of things in our lives. And we will say, Father, forgive me. I'm so sorry. And, and we will even go and, and repent to others that we have wronged or sinned against. It's through that process of regular self-examination of taking of the Lord's Supper that we are made more like Christ through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, some will ask, should my children take communion? And that's something that we leave between the parents and the child. If they've given their lives to Jesus, if they've repented of their sin, if they've trusted in His grace for salvation, yes, they should take of communion. Have they been water baptized is another way to understand if your children are ready for communion. If they're not ready for baptism, they're not yet ready for communion. The two represent the same thing. Baptism is something we do at the beginning of our walk of faith that represents that our life is, is dead and hidden with Christ, our life of sin, and that we are risen again to new life. And communion is a, a similar act that we do regularly. And I thank the Lord that we don't have to be baptized every Sunday because that would be a real mess. And so instead of baptism every Sunday, we come and we partake of communion regularly. And so we don't have an age limit where we say that no one under a certain age can partake. We leave this between the parents and the child and God. But it's important that we come and, and that we have a spirit of reverence, a spirit of, of understanding of what this represents, the seriousness of it as we partake the presence of Christ that is with us as God's people when we meet together. Jesus said, when two or more are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And so as we come and we partake, as we come to the table, the Lord is here and his presence is here. 
in a very real and spiritual way, and we should, we should take that seriously. And Paul says that, that they're not taking the Lord's Supper seriously, and because of that, they're experiencing the judgment of the Lord. And I would say if, if you know, like they were getting drunk at the communion table, you know, if, if you walk out of the communion service and you can't pass a breathalyzer test, you're probably not taking of communion in a reverent way. You're probably doing it for the wrong reasons. And so we need to do it for the right reasons, remembering the Lord's death and, and this thing that symbolically represents that his life is now in us. It's also a time of spiritual nourishment, spiritual nourishment. The bread and the juice are a picture of the spiritual food that Christ is to our souls. Jesus said that he is the true vine, and unless we are connected to him, we cannot produce good spiritual fruit. The bread and the juice are a picture, are a symbol of that nourishment that he gives to us. They symbolize the spiritual benefits of the work of Christ in our lives as we participate. And, and we experience these things through taking of the Lord's Supper together. We experience the spiritual benefits of the work of Christ as we partake of the Lord's Supper together. Now, you might say, well, how does that work? I don't know. I don't know how it works. I couldn't begin to explain to you how coming forward and taking of the bread and taking of the juice, how it produces a spiritual benefit in your life. I can't begin to explain to you how it works, but I can tell you that it does work. It does work. It is very real, the spiritual benefit that we receive from partaking of communion. It's kind of like I can't really explain to you how when I'm really hungry and I'm really hangry, if I eat a nice big steak, all of a sudden everything's right in the world. I can't explain to you why that works. I could just tell you that it does. And it's the same way with communion. Just because we can't explain it all doesn't mean that it doesn't work in our lives. Jesus didn't say, come, take, and understand everything. He said, come, take, and eat. And so we do this in response to the Lord's command. Something else that is beautiful about communion is that it represents the unity of believers, the unity of the body of Christ. We all come to the same table. Now, I know that we have different sections here at the church. That's just so it doesn't take an hour to all go through one line. But we all come to the same table. We're all feasting on the same meal. There's not a section, there's not a line for Republicans and a line for Democrats. We all come to the same table. We all feast on the same meal. We, we're not, we're, it's part of the unity that we have in Christ. There's not one line for male and another line for female. There's not one line for rich and another line for poor. There's not one section for black and brown and another section for Caucasian or white. There's not one section for people that speak this language and one for people who speak that language. There's not a section for the educated and those who don't have a degree. We all come together. Amen. And amen. It's a beautiful thing. And this is where the Corinthian church was getting it so wrong. 
But we all get our spiritual life from Christ, no other source. And so Jesus has blessed his church with the gift of communion. And by partaking in it, we partake in the very essence of the Lord. We partake together with fellow members in the church, and it unites us. And like baptism, it is a line in the sand that we draw. And we say by taking it that I belong to Jesus and that he belongs to me and that I have been bought with a price, that I have been redeemed and that my sin debt is paid in full. Now, if you will permit me to have just an extra few minutes here, because we live in San Antonio, Texas, the greatest city in the whole world, I might add, Three people believe that. Um, we'll all take communion together. It's all right. It's all right. Um, there are other views on communion. And in San Antonio, we are a city that was started, founded by a Catholic mission, a Roman Catholic mission here. And our views on communion as Protestants are substantially different than the Roman Catholic Church. And I feel compelled to share with you what those differences are as your pastor, as your shepherd. Most people do not know what the Roman Catholic Church truly teaches on communion. They think that it's very similar to what I just explained to you. It is not. And I say this with deep love in my heart to Catholics everywhere. I don't have anything against Catholics. Many of you were raised Catholic. Most of you have family that is still Catholic. I have nothing against Catholics at all in my heart. I've had many friends who have been a part of the Catholic Church. I've known many people in ministry who feel compelled to be a part of the Catholic Church to try to bring about some sort of renewal or reformation. Um, we tried that in the 1500s, and it's still going. But anyway, nevertheless, I know that there are brothers and sisters in Christ who are part of the Roman Catholic Church. I don't have an issue with Catholic people. I have an issue with what the church teaches. And so I want to draw a very clear picture for you very quickly, because we live in San Antonio, because many of us don't know truly what they teach, I need to explain to you how it is different from what we believe. And the bottom line is, it comes from the Word of God. This is, this is the bottom line, is what does the Word of God say? And we need to go with that, and not simply what traditions say and have developed over Time. So, with that said, again, if you're here today and you're a Catholic, I'm so glad that you're here today. I, I really genuinely, truly am. I don't harbor anything against, in my heart against that. God knows that I don't. Uh, but I do feel compelled to share with you these teachings. The Catholic Church believes in a doctrine called transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. And what this teaches is that the bread and the juice or the wine are literally, physically 
transformed into the literal, physical body of Jesus and blood of Jesus. Not that it's symbolic, but that when they partake of the communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's table, uh, the Lord's supper, that they are literally ingesting the physical flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. They believe and teach that when the priest raises up the bread and says, this is my body, that at that moment it is transformed into the literal physical flesh of Jesus Christ. Even though it retains the physical properties, it still looks like bread and it still looks like juice or wine, but that, it, that the substance no longer is truly bread or truly wine. And so this is why only a priest can officiate over communion in the Roman Catholic Church, because only a priest in their uh, teaching has the power to transform uh, the bread and juice into the body and the blood. And so this is why the Catholic Mass is at the center of the Catholic Church, that there's very little um, space in the service given to the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God, but that the majority of the time is given to this ceremony whereby they believe that they are transforming the bread and the juice into blood and into wine. So, Roman Catholicism teaches that communion is a real, physical, literal sacrifice of Jesus' body and blood offered again on the altar for the remission of the sins for those who are present. I need to say that again. The reason why they believe so strongly that it's the actual physical uh, body and physical blood is they believe and teach that they are offering up Jesus' body and blood again as another sacrifice on the altar to pay the price for the sins of those who are present. That is not the gospel. What we read about in Hebrews is how many sacrifices are there? One. How many times was it offered? Once for all. And so they believe and teach that it is a continual re-offering every single time they come together of Jesus' body and blood. I'm going to read to you briefly uh, from a book called The Faith of Millions. It is a book by John O'Brien, who is a Catholic priest. And this book accurately represents the teachings of the official uh, Roman Catholic Church. He says, and I quote, when the priest announces the tremendous words of the consecration, and this is in the Mass, when, when he raises the bread and he says, this is my body, when he announces those words, listen to what they believe they're doing. He reaches up into the heavens, brings Christ down from his throne, and places him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of man. It is a power exercised by the priest greater than that of saints and angels, greater than that of seraphim and cherubim. Indeed, it is a power greater even than the power of the Virgin Mary, 
While the Blessed Virgin was the human agency by which Christ became incarnate a single time, the priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him present on our altar as the eternal victim. The priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him present on our altar as the eternal victim for the sins of man, not once, but thousands of times. The priest speaks, and lo, Christ, the eternal and omnipotent God, bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's commands. So the Catholic Church believes and teaches that the priest has the authority over Christ to bring him down off of his throne and to sacrifice him there on the altar for the forgiveness and the propitiation of the sins of those who are present. That is not what we believe. We believe in a once-for-all sacrifice. What we take is a memorial, it is a remembrance, it is a way uh, to experience, yes, the spiritual life of Christ, but we are not physically offering Jesus' body again for sin. This is why in most Catholic churches, Jesus is still hanging on the cross. It's not an empty cross, because they believe that he is being sacrificed there again every time that they perform the Mass. So Roman Catholic theology states that the Mass is not a dramatic reenactment, it is not theater, it is not a commemoration, it is not a memorial, it is not a remembrance. Roman Catholicism teaches that communion is a real sacrifice that continues the eternal sacrifice of Christ, the eternal victim, and it is offered again and again and again and again and again and again and again for the forgiveness of the sins of those who are present and also for the forgiveness of sins of those who have already died. So this is why many in the Catholic Church don't have assurance of faith because how do I know which sacrifice pays the price for my sin? Was it the sacrifice I had last week? Was it the sacrifice I had when I first got saved? Is it the sacrifice I'm gonna take next week? Which is the one that truly pays for my sin? Let me tell you, it is none of those. It is truly the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so I, I don't say that in any way to demean anybody, but I want you to know that what they teach is not the gospel. It is not the truth. And it is not only a little bit different, it is substantially different. And so I, I share that with you because I know many of you know and love people who are part of the Catholic Church and I want you to love them and to shine your light for them. And they need to know that their sins are not forgiven because of what the Catholic priest does for them, that their sins will be forgiven if they will put their faith in the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for them. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, 2,000 years ago on the cross. Lord, I thank you that that sacrifice is complete and it is all sufficient. Lord, that that sacrifice has purchased for us forgiveness of sins, salvation, redemption, adoption into your family. 
Lord, that we are no longer your enemies, but you call us friends. Lord, we are no longer your enemies, but you call us sons and daughters today. It is because of the work of Christ and the grace of God in our lives, Lord, that we can be called your children. And so, Lord, we thank you that as we participate in Christ's death, we also participate in his new life, in his resurrection that gives to us new and spiritual life even today, that our sins are forgiven, that our life of pain and shame and death is washed away, and that you call us to live empowered by your Spirit. Father, thank you as we go out from here, we go out as your people who are called by your name to shine our lights and to live for you each and every day. Lord, I pray that you would bless everyone here today in a real and special way as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.